Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray and then let's get started. Um, Father God, we are thankful to you this morning for, uh, one, for the morning that we can actually articulate those words that you've given us mobility in our limbs, sight in these eyes, and Lord God, breath in these lungs. We are thankful to you. Uh, we ask this morning, O oh God, as we open up the uh, text, O oh God, that your word, which is God breathed, would also breathe on us. Lord God, could we benefit from mouth to mouth, Lord God, from you? Um, Heavenly Father, this morning, would you open and illuminate uh, this uh, text of scripture, Lord God, and help our hearts, regardless of how many times we may have read it, or even if we've never um, uh, creased this part of our Bibles, oh God, would you bless us with fresh insight concerning your son, concerning yourself, concerning your spirit, concerning your plan for the church, concerning ourselves, and in all things, oh God, would you glorify yourself as we, your people, are uh, deepened in our capacity to worship you, convicted if we are outside of you drawn closer if we've drifted farther from you, Lord God. Do what only you can do, um, we ask. Oh, God, I pray that uh, if we brought with us distractions, that you would just kind of uh, help us to press pause on that. If our minds are racing uh, with all kinds of anxiety and other responsibilities, would you help us, Lord God? Would you rescue us now by your spirit from those things um, so that we would have um, our, our full attention and focus uh, given to you? Uh, this is our prayer and your matchless and holy name. Amen. Amen. So uh, whether you've been here for the full ride or you're just now uh, coming in, we have been working through, as you've already heard, the book of First Corinthians. And we've made our way all the way up to chapter 12. Now, this series is kind of, kind of our, our summer series. So we've done um, two stints in 1 Corinthians to get up to chapter 12. One started last summer. And then, of course, we spent about 10 or so weeks there. And then, of course, we're back here now this summer. And we are spending another 9 to 10 weeks here. And we have landed in chapter 12. So don't feel like you are far behind. But just in case you missed some details, you need to understand that as early as chapter 1, the Apostle Paul began talking to the Corinthian saints about division about division. And guess what? Here we are almost to the end of the book in chapter 12, and he's still talking about division. But he's not addressing division, so to speak, like head on, just saying the words division, division, division for 12 consecutive chapters. What he's doing is actually demonstrating how this sin of division courses itself throughout the veins of the church, and it has these evidences in everything. This is a cautionary tale, I believe, even for us today to consider this, that if you've got a, a sin that you're nursing in the underlying uh, uh, kind of caverns of your life, while it may stay private, it'll never stay parked. It has this interesting way of just seeping into everything that we do. And this is what's happening in the Corinthian church. They have divisions in chapter one where they were kind of uh, comparing and contrasting and bragging about who baptized them. And then in chapter two, they have another uh, 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 segment of division. You fast forward and division is working its way out in the way that Jews and Gentiles are interacting. Division is working its way out in the way males and females, uh, those who are of the upper crust and those who are of the lower crust in society, so to speak. Uh, so division just continues to just echo uh, and seep throughout uh, the pages of scripture and it shows evidences in almost everything we do and I would just say if we're going to learn from this great example of scripture make sure that we keep tabs on not just keeping private something that may be going on underneath our lives but that we stamp it out as quickly as we discover it because if not it will infiltrate everything that we do not just as individuals but also all of our relationships as well as um, our churches. When we look uh, squarely at the kind of impact that division is having on the Corinthian church, we're now getting a chance to see how it's impacting their utilization of the gifts. 
Now, when you think about spiritual gifts, you might not think about a church as seemingly struggling or as immature or as imperfect as the Corinthian church as being one that's inundated with the gifts, but they are. They are literally saturated with multiple manifestations of the Spirit. They've got the full toolbox working. And, and what, what that lets us know is that the evidences of the gifts are not contingent upon perfection or maturity. God has given it because he has something that he wants the church to do and accomplish. However, these works of maturity and underlying issues in their lives are indeed affecting how effective the gifts are when they are at work within the local church. Today, I want to talk to you about this unique array of gifts that God has given the church uh, under the title of a new toolbox. It is a new toolbox. The reason that I call it a new toolbox is because these particular saints would have never uh, really gotten any uh, direct teaching on this, or maybe some during the, the, the 18 months that Paul spent with them, and we'll cover that in just a moment. But first, I want to help you understand something about the nature of a new toolbox. Um, I asked in the earlier service, was Rashad there? Because he was a witness to this activity that I'm about to chair, but he's not here, so i let him know he got mentioned twice and was a no-show on today's message. Um, but my son was there nevertheless. I see him back in the back. And uh, uh, the new toolbox is really just kind of a story that not only emanates from the text, but also from, the, uh, from our own home. Just uh, this last holiday we uh, experienced, uh, my son and I went over to Harbor Freight. My daughter, I think you were there too, right? We went over to Harbor Freight and brought a brand new shiny red uh, five-drawer toolbox. Uh, Carrie, you were there too. She was excited about it as well. We got this new toolbox. And the reason that we bought a toolbox is because we got sick and tired as a family who, you know, we've been married 23 years and every time we, uh, we have a particular undertaking that requires a tool, we either have to search high and low and it takes way more time than, it, than it takes way more time to find the tool than it is to actually fix the item. Or either we find ourselves buying a new tool because it's a non-negotiable and then find out that we already had that tool when we find it later. Or we find ourselves using substandard or the wrong tools and we end up putting things together maybe substandard in a way or maybe we put it together real well but we've done it in a way that's not nearly as efficient as it could have been because our tools are just messily all over the place. Stay with me. So we bought this toolbox to address a problem, and that is because our tools were messily organized or not organized at all. We assembled the toolbox out in the driveway. We, we roll it up into the garage and find a nice snuggly place for it. And I stood its big lid up and pulled the ball bearing drawers and the nice rubbery pads in the bottom of this monstrosity. I was loving it. Such a grand display. I love the toolbox. Right? So then I got really excited. Everybody else is done because they're tired of the building project of putting the toolbox together. They've left me to myself. And now I'm running all over the house finding all the tools that go in it. I got tools in the back of my truck. I got tools in the console of my truck. I got tools on the floor of my truck. I got tools uh, on the deck. I got some in the garage. I got some in the basement. I got some on the top shelf in a little basket that was kind of a substitute toolbox. I got some underneath drawers and cabinets in the bathroom where we may have done a project. I got some laying next to a bookshelf that used to get, you know, was being put together. I got tools. We got tools. We got tools in various drawers in the kitchen or wherever you have your designated drunk drawer, the one that you can pull open and there's, there's batteries, there's instruction manuals, there's warranties, there's spools of wire, there's little things that look so unique that you can't throw it away because you feel like it's going to get used again even though you haven't used it in 10 years. It's that drawer. I just went in there and I just got all the tools that I could find and I put them in the new toolbox. Now what was interesting was something 
beautiful happened that I wasn't expecting. I mean, I knew that I was all uh, going to get all my tools in one place, and that was going to make life awesome and efficient. But something else occurred. A beautiful story emerged from the toolbox. And the story was that when the tools are properly organized, they tell a story about the kinds of projects that we as a family regularly undertake. You could just look at our toolbox, and in a moment, you could go, oh, they do lots of automotive things. Oh, they do lots of carpentry. Oh, they do lots of things with electrical stuff. Oh, they do lots of plumbing. Oh, they do lots of masonry. Oh, they do lots of stuff with the, you know, outside with landscaping. I mean, it just, the, the, the toolbox immediately, when well organized, tells a story about the kinds of projects or missions that we as a family are often undertaking. And so I believe that this idea of the new toolbox is not just a, a tale about me over at Harbor Freight uh, having Christmas in, in June. I believe that it is also a story for us as a local church because when the church's gifts are properly inventory, they should tell a compelling story. And that's the point of today's message is that the church's gifts inventoried, when they're properly inventoried, should tell a compelling story. They should say something about the missions and the undertakings and the things that this particular family are all about. Now, when the tools are messily maintained, they don't tell the proper story, and that's what's happening at the Corinthian church right now, is that the gifts are there, but they are a mess. And so today we're going to walk through, yes, the whole of chapter 12, but I promise I'll be as efficient as I can if the Lord allows my gift or my tool to work uh, properly and not be messily all over the place. So if you got your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to uh, turn with me in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, as you're working your way over there, if you haven't already gotten there, I'm going to give you four or five words that will help you keep up with me just in case I go too fast or you need to fall asleep or step out. Four or five terms that you'll need to really keep up with today's message are these. The compelling story, the compelling story uh, uh, that should be told by the inventory of the church's gifts will involve this. Number one, they should glorify. Glorify. Remember this. They glorify. This is part of a compelling story. Number two, edify. Edify. This is part of a compelling story of the gift inventory. They will unify. We're going to learn more about this. I'm going to unpack each one in detail. And they should also clarify. And so if you follow me carefully, again, the gifts will glorify, they will edify or sanctify, they will unify, and they will also clarify. And I will unpack each one in detail as we move. So now looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, let's just really kind of slow walk the first couple of verses. Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, uh, I do not want you to be uninformed. Why on earth would the Corinthian church be uninformed concerning the gifts? Well, the first reason is they, unlike us, are not yet the beneficiaries of a completed book of Acts. Their lives actually make up the fabric of the book of Acts. They themselves are not the beneficiaries of a book of Ephesians, like over in chapter 4 where we have another listing of the gifts, or a Romans 12 or a Romans 8. As a matter of fact, this, the ink is not even dry on this letter that Paul is sending to them. This is one of the first times that they would have received a comprehensive address concerning the gifts. 
Now, they would have obviously, based on the work of the Holy Spirit among them, as is evidenced by the letter, already had experience with the gift, but that experience would not have been compounded by the exposition of Scripture to help them effectively organize their thinking and their way of operation. So this is why they are yet uninformed in some ways concerning the gifts. Uh, they would have had at their disposal the law, the prophets, and the writings of what we call the Torah or the entirety of the Old Testament. Some of them being Jewish would have been like, oh, yeah, I get this. But still, the, the Old Testament is not saturated with a lot of dialogue about the function and the operation of the gifts. They would have been able to bring the Old Testament text alongside the year and a half teaching that the Apostle Paul had given them when he spent time amongst them. And he would have certainly extrapolated or pulled forward some of the ideas concerning gifts and how they operate. And they would have even seen gifts in operation in the Apostle Paul or even seen it as the gospel was being newly formed. But again, this would have been very much a part of their experience, but not necessarily anything that would have been given to them in an expository way. And so their understanding of the gifts is still brand new. They are not coming, remember? You remember this now. I'm giving you this. If we were Corinthian folks, we're being saved from paganism. We're not coming from multiple uh, 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 generations of family background and exposure with Christianity. We don't even have a completed Bible at our disposal yet, and definitely not one that is fully uh, uh, contextualized for my cultural situation. And so this is why Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now, God is not unwise and God is not selfish and neither is God rude, nor does he make mistakes. Even in the absence of a completed canon, God is still giving them all the equipment that they need to be effective. How do we know? Because Jesus promised in John chapter 14 that when he is ascended, he said, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will send you another helper. Family language and administrative language. I'm going to send someone to help you and you will not be like children just left adrift. So the job of the Holy Spirit in the absence of a completed canon, at least in this stage and season in the church's growth, is to give them a robust experience in God so they don't feel like they're missing out anything having not met Jesus face to face, nor in the absence of a completed canon. So the gifts are working because God is filling in the blanks. There's things that they desperately need to know and hear concerning God, concerning the gospel. They would not have had the completed narratives yet of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They don't have that at their disposal. So you've got the Holy Spirit working through individual members, giving them the ability through prophecy and tongues and interpretation and all of the kind of things to make sure that the Holy Spirit is living up to the, his, his, his job description and the promise that Jesus made that we will not leave you orphans, but we will send you a helper. We will be with you, me and the Father, Jesus said, through the agency of the Holy Spirit. So they've got what they need. And then God continues to add even more through this letter that is coming along. So God looks at the Corinthian church and says, okay, you don't have a canon, no problem. I'll send, I got, you got your Holy Spirit. You coming from a brand new culture, no problem. I'll send an apostle to give you my words. Now follow me carefully. One of the first things I want you to note in this passage here, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know when you were pagans... You were led astray to mute idols, idols that can't speak. This is important, distinctive. However you were led, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says that Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except, by, except in the Holy Spirit. Why is this an important thing to point out? You see, during the day that our friends, our family, our brothers and sisters in Corinth would have come to know the Lord, being saved out of a pagan lifestyle, they would have been saved from serving idol gods who could not speak. 
But here it is now you're serving and saved to a God who is alive and who does speak. Well, if God is talking, how do I know when he's saying something if I don't have his text in front of me? Therefore, the Apostle Paul gives them one of the first clues of healthy discernment. No one, is going to, no one who is speaking by the Holy Spirit is going to say that Jesus is accursed. Why was this important? Because during the day that Jesus, or during the day that Paul is speaking to this group of people, one of the great things that was idolized in their culture was not only idol gods, but men and women who had great oratory skill. And that's why the Apostle Paul said earlier in the book in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, look at this. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then he continues with that verse. You might not have it on the screen, but in your Bibles, he says, The reason that I came among you and claimed to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified was so that your faith would not rest in excellency of speech or in the words of men or the people who can speak well or being great orators, but it would rest in the faith, the, the work of Jesus Christ and in the demonstration of the Spirit's power. Now, this is, this is quite a compelling uh, moment I want you to consider. If these ideas of, of great orators coming around in Corinth and soliciting patronage from people, they would stand up in the public place and people, whether they were talking about math or science or arts or poetry, anything that they would talk about, people loved and craved hearing great speeches and orators. Consider who we're talking about here, the Apostle Paul who gives us the bulk of the New Testament, speaking multiple languages, well-trained in culture and arts of every extent. Surely he could have pieced together a great PowerPoint presentation saturated with all the sophistication that their ears would have enjoyed concerning the nuances of the Savior and the glory of the gospel. And he says, but nope, when I came to you, I laid all of that down, though I could do it, because I wanted your faith to rest, not in how well I spoke or how nice of a message I could put together. I wanted you to have your faith, not in the words of any men, but in the power of God and the demonstration of the spirit and in the power of the gospel. Why was that necessary? Because the moment some Joe Blow or simple Sally came to town and preached a better message that was more eloquent, more cute, more saturated with illustrations, that was more emotionally engaging than what Paul put together, they might think, well, that's where my faith needs to go because that's the kind of culture that they were coming out of. Therefore, in the Corinthian church, one of the primary problems is that people who have the speaking gifts whether it be by way of tongues and interpretation, whether it be by way of prophecy, words of wisdom, or words of knowledge, those who have the vocal gifts get more of the shine and the honor, which was one of the, the, the cultural issues that they were bringing into the church. And so this is why Paul prided himself on working with them in simplicity, simplicity, so that their faith would not rest in that. It's so one of the things that I think we need to be cautious of as a local church is this. Remember this. Uh, the, the first point is this. The gifts should glorify the giver. The gifts should glorify the giver. This is one of the first compelling stories that the inventory should tell. They should glorify the giver. If, if I do happen to have a gift, it should glorify the giver, not necessarily the displayer. 
gifts should glorify the giver. In, in other words, this is why he says, hey, if someone comes before you and is speaking really under the spirit, they'll never say that Jesus is a curse. Their gifts are going to utilize themselves to point everyone's heart back to the Christ. And listen, at different seasons and stages in your life, in the life of this church, in our life, and in the life of the church globally, different gifts were center stage based on the need for that season. Consider, if you will, the old toolbox analogy that I just gave you. Immediately after having stood up the new shiny red uh, toolbox with the smooth writing drawers, I went out to do some work, take on a project, if you will. And as I was taking on a project, I noticed, like, man, I grab my hammer, my bamboo shacks, and my wire cutters often. Why? Because I'm propping up some rose bushes out in the back or taking some flowers where the blooms have broken under the influence of the wind, and I'm, I'm doing that work. But guess what? In the fall, that won't be my work. I'll be using a whole nother tool. But if the tools talk at night, the wire cutters are bragging right now. They're telling the, the three-ton floor jack, man, you ain't nothing. You might be strong, but you ain't getting up and move the truck one time to change a tire. I'm getting used daily. Wire cutters in there bragging. Twine that I'm trying back bushes, they're in there bragging. Yeah, me too. I go with the wire cutters. Gifts are bragging with each other. The hammer, I get used in the house. I get used outside the house. I bag everything. I'm the hammer, right? Hammers, tools are bragging about the levels of utilization. That's what's happening in Corinth. People are soaking up honor based on their frequency and the publicity of their utilization. People who've got the speaking use, the speaking gifts are in vogue right now. So the apostle Paul has to come in and nip that in the bud. So the gifts are designed to glorify. Well, listen, whether we're pliers, whether we're hammers, or whether we're wire, no matter what the gift is, it, it, the, the, no matter what gift is in demand, they should all promote the lordship of Jesus. In here, in our lives, no matter which gift is in most demand at the time, we need to all promote the lordship of Jesus Christ. When it comes to a new church plant like ours, only four or so years old, I mean, there's just certain gifts that seem to be front and center all the time. But no matter what the season is, no matter what gifts are front and center based on the demand or the season or the need of the project or the mission, they should all promote the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's look together at verses 4 through 11. Pay very, care uh, very careful attention to the words that Paul uses. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Now there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. Now, there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each one is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Don't forget that. For to one is given uh, through the spirit an utterance of wisdom and to another an utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. To another faith by the same spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one spirit. To another, working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. All these empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The, the, the next big idea is this. Not only do the gifts glorify, or should they glorify the giver, they should sanctify and edify the believer. The gifts should sanctify and edify the believer. Now, I want you to notice the unique wordplay that Paul provides us with here. This is not arbitrary that seven different times in these few verses, he works us between the variety of the gifts, but yet the singularity of who empowers them. Did you see that? 
There's a variety of gifts, but the same spirit, a varieties of service, but the same Lord, a variety of activities, but the same God. And then also notice how he implicitly or actually explicitly works in the whole Godhead into the conversation, the spirit, the Lord and God. Why? Because the same pagan people or previously pagan people would have been saved not only from a culture that steeped itself in in patronizing great orators, but they also would have been saved from a culture that was saturated with polytheism, serving more than one God. And so if someone comes in and says, bing, oh, look, I got tongues. Bing, oh, I got interpretation. Oh, I got this, oh, I got this. this. This great list of gifts that are being wrought on the church, some might be tempted to think, well, this has come from the speaking God. This has come from the interpretation God. This has come from the language God. This comes from the preaching God. This comes from the apostolic God. There would have been an innate temptation to assume that the variety of gifts were coming from different gods and to confuse the Trinitarian Godhead with that of polytheism. And so the Apostle Paul makes sure he brings the whole Godhead into the symphony of the working of the gifts to show that while it is God who's given it and the Spirit who's empowering it, the Son who's dying for it, and the Lord who's teaching us how to navigate it. So that we understand that the three in one are working together, not independently, but that this variety that you see is all brought about by the same one God. Why? Why would that be necessary? These are the same folks who in chapter 1 pick teams, factions, and groups, fraternities, if you will, based on who baptized them. So certainly they would have divided themselves up based on who they thought gifted them. So he's addressing, even through the working of the gifts, the nature of division and how division should not exist if you're really using your gift right. So, so... The gifts tell a compelling story. They glorify the giver. The gifts sanctify and edify the believer. But how do they do this? Remember, there was this one term that I gave you some air quotes around. I said, don't forget this one. It's going to come back. When we talked about uh, each one is given. Each one, that's us. Each one is given a manifestation of the spirit arranged by God's own crafting. Each one is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. What is this common good? I believe that common good is best encapsulated in these words here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15. And he gave some, the, uh, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, the evangelists, the uh, shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I want you to be on the lookout. This is what we're reading. You are looking for what is this common good that's supposed to come from the gifts. And here it is. To equip the saints for the working of the ministry, for the building up of the body, until we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness, and by uh, uh, deceitful schemes." And again, you had better believe that there was philosophy and dogma to boot that was coursing through the doors of the church as people saw this new movement like nothing they had ever seen before that was powerful and awesome and everybody, the opportunists in town, would want to get on board and pretend to be one of God's gifted people. And so they would have tried to hijack the gatherings and speak ill of God's people. That's why we needed discernment to know which spirit 
was coming from where? But the gifts should not only glorify the giver, but they should also sanctify and edify the believer. These are the, the common goods that we see come out of that text. Equip for the work. The gifts ought to be, my gift, my gift ought to be leveraged in your life in such a way that you are made more ready to do God's work. Whatever this grand orchestration of this, whatever story is being told by this toolbox, my role in the toolbox is to make sure that you can do what God has called you to do. That's at least one. But guess what? Not just mine, all of ours are for equipping the saints for the work. To edify the body. We also need to be built up to solidify our faith and to sanctify us. That is to make us more like Christ. Did you see that in Ephesians 4, 11 through 15? Again, to equip, that one was obvious. To edify or build up the body, that one was obvious. To solidify our faith, not so obvious. He said that when we're growing in maturity, we will not be like children who are tossed to and fro by the waves. And the waves represented every word that was every current or idea coming through by the culture. In other words, if you are being grounded in the gospel, you ought to be gaining weight that helps you formulate the proper thoughts concerning critical race theory, concerning social justice, concerning uh, 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 all of the other narratives that seem to be competing with the gospel being front and center in the hearts and minds of believers. The idea is to not become experts in those topics, but to get grounded in the gospel so that when the waters wash over us, we, like, we are like booties that are, excuse me, buoys that are anchored to the bottom. Does this make sense? The Bible invited us into this ocean view. Take a small child out to the ocean, and regardless of how well they can swim and how much they enjoy themselves, once they get to a certain point, the waves take over because they don't have enough weight even though they have great desire. So, we are called to work out this common good. The common good is at work within all of us, not just some of us. Each of the gifts are given for this common good. Hear me on this. Apart from you being edified and him, that is God being glorified, I cannot be fully sanctified. Apart from you being edified and God being glorified, I as a gift possessor, cannot be fully sanctified. But if I'm not, listen to me, I, I say this often in, in, in a silly way, but can you imagine if God has given me a gift of teaching that the only times that I used it were in the shower or while I brushed my teeth in the bathroom with the door tightly closed or maybe in the car by myself while sitting in traffic. I'm just offering up three to five point outlines of scriptural teachings. Just going to town on myself. Can you believe that? No, who's being edified? And then how is God being glorified? And how is my heart being sanctified? It's not. All of our gifts have their best effect when they're turned loose on each other. Virtually all of them have these handles and, and whatever their, their various prongs. They only make sense when they're turned on to others. Every gift is designed that way. And so apart from you being edified, and God being glorified in the utilization of the gift, no one is being effectively or practically sanctified. This was a great risk point in the Corinthian church because the gifts were being leveraged in ways that were self-serving. People looking for special honor and credit in the way that they displayed and used the gifts. 
because that was the agenda and the mindset that was consistent in their world. In their world, if you were a great speaker and could draw a great crowd and you could craft wonderful, well-sound and well-put-together oratory messages, you could draw people to you. And it is hard that when that is what you have been baptized in as a culture to get it out of you when you come to Christ unless he is actively doing the work and then you are also working to be sanctified and made more like Jesus. When we talk about the gifts are designed to sanctify us, that is to make us more like him when we grow up in him. Not just become deeper in the word of God, but the depth of the God's word should make me more like Christ. Depth is not knowing vocabulary that no one else can figure out without Googling. Real depth is having something that is in your life so deeply that it is holding your feet to the ground and you are unwavering on that topic. That's depth, not fancy speech. And so we are called to be held down by the great deep truths of the gospel, but yet at the same time to grow up in Christ, to become more like him who had all knowledge who had all power, who had all capacity, but yet kept leveraging all of it to serve others. Notice even Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, but yet to serve. I came to seek and save those that are lost. So so as we're growing up in Christ, the natural orientation of my gift becomes external in its very nature. This is one of the clear indications that I am maturing, that I am growing up. Not that I can pronounce stuff that nobody else can spell, but that I am serving my socks off. And then you're like Jesus because they didn't have socks in the first century. Amen. Didn't I see some socks on the... What is that? (laughs) Amen. Anyway, well, thank you for that. Let's take a look at verses 12 through 26. It'd be hard for us to read through all of it and you potentially to stay awake, but let's go there. Verses 12 through 26 offer us an interesting insight because now where the Apostle Paul has created this context in which we understand that we all have a gift, he now is going to help us to rein this thing in. And so here it is in verses, verses, verses 12 through uh, um, um, 16. Uh, listen to this. For just as um, the body, that is your human body, is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. So these were the people who would have been obsessed with the externals, saved from lifestyles of, 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 of impropriety and all kinds of sexual uh, uh, overfocus. And so he steps into that. You know about the body, right? And so, so just as the body consists of many members, but, but all of its parts make up one body, so it is in Christ. So he's redeeming the idea of how the way they think about the body. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greek, slaves or free, and all are made to drink of one spirit. In other words, regardless of which one of the gifts you got, it all came from the same spirit and you're all part of each other. You're all part of each other. Do you consider your hand to be more valuable than your feet? This is what he's getting at. Are your arms more valuable than your legs? You see what's happening? You see what's happening here? So, so it's all, we're all part of the same. But he's saying this to individual people who are looking for every possible way to segment themselves and find superiority over one another. 
For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, would that make it any less part of the body? The gifts, ladies and gentlemen, do this. They not only sanctify the giver, they not only, uh, excuse me, they not only glorify the giver, sanctify the, uh, sanctify the believer, but they also unify the church. This is a call to, for the church to be unified, to see itself. But how exactly do the gifts unify the church? Well, number one, we see here that the gifts all come from a place that, dry, that create a culture of equal dependency. Each of the gifts is equally dependent upon Christ and the spirit to work right. Equally dependent upon the spirit to not only to be distributed, but to also function well. But look at verses 15 and 16. Not only are they equally dependent, but they are also equal. They have a culture of equal interdependence. They are not just dependent on God to empower them. They are dependent on one and one another to have their best effect. One of the silly stories that we tell in Gospel Hope 101 is what if you came to my house and saw a perfectly preserved set of human hands in a trophy case? Remember that one? Rings, fully manicured, Rolex watch. I mean, I'm talking about hands up to the wrist, but just in a case like this. Awesome hands. Not decrepit, not decayed, perfectly preserved. Awesome, incredible hands. What would you think? That's weird, that's crazy, that's out of place. Why? They're human hands, they're not alien hands. Why? Because hands apart from a body seem weird. And this is the same argument that Paul is making. These gifts, uh, 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 these gifts trying to exalt themselves or magnify themselves or define themselves separate from their interdependent function is weird and wrong, off-putting, off-schedule. Not God's original design. And so, what we learn from this text is that division in the church is dissolved when each of the parts does what it is designed to do. We can hold some classes on division and unity. We could, we could host some, some messages. We could put out some real robust content on all the compelling reasons that we should be unified. But real division is dissolved when each of the parts of a unit do what they are designed to do. Um, one, of my, one of my good friends is a, is a mechanic, um, uh, an interesting one. He's highly skilled, but he's somewhat messy. All of us know a guy like this. Um, and I go over to the shop sometimes, and I, and I marvel as I see heaps of interesting and intriguing-looking pieces of metal strewn about all over outside on the yard and up against the building that hadn't been picked up or thrown away. And I'm peeping and turning my head upside down like this. And, 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 every once in a while, and I recognize the individual parts in many cases. But aside from my ability to recognize the individual parts, what I find to be most intriguing is when you open the hood and you see them all working together in symphony. This spinny thing with sprockets, this other thing with grooves, this other thing that goes up and down, this other thing that manages heat. I mean, whether I see it used on the floor by itself or brand new in a box by his desk, none of them are as meaningful as they are when they all get under the hood and you turn the key and watch that beautiful symphony. of That's what the gifts do. I mean, yeah, they got intrinsic value if you buy them individually, but man, do they show their best stuff when they're working together and they're, 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 they're intermeshing and they're, they're complimenting and, and communicating with each other. And so division is dissolved when each part does what it's designed to do. 
I've never gone over to a mechanic shop and had somebody start up an engine on a nice vehicle and had it go vroom. And I go, man, listen to that camshaft. No, no, no. Listen to that engine. Talking about the hope. And so the gifts, they tell a compelling story when properly inventoried. What's that story? They glorify the giver. They sanctify and edify the believer. They unify the church, but then they do something else. Verses 27 through 31. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. All are, are all apostles? Rhetorical question. The answer is obviously no for the next few of these. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And yet I will show you a more excellent way. That's a teaser for the love chapter in chapter 13. But before we get there, I want you to focus on what Paul just did by giving them this list of gifts and then enumerating them in this very special way. In order to fully appreciate this, you need to almost go back to the opening illustration. Remember, the gifts, they tell a compelling story. One is to glorify the giver, to uh, sanctify and edify the body, to unify the church, but they also clarify its mission. It is collectively that God's toolbox tells a story of the church's mission. The unique arrangement of the gifts tell a story of the mission that God has. And so here it is that God inventories the gifts for us and by assigning these, these numerical things, first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers. What mission, what exactly is God designing? What is he building through this unique symphony of gifts? And here's how it gets clarified when you follow these gifts properly. The apostles are the wise master builders, or one might say, actually, the underlying Greek, it sounds just like the word architect. They are the ones who roll out and build and establish the blueprint of what the church is supposed to be about. The prophets are very much like engineers who come and take that blueprint and the past things that they do know and the contemporary problems and issues that they do have and help them to adapt historic truths to contemporary issues. The prophets were like great engineers who would declare things that the people had not heard. But man, that's exactly how you wrap the scriptures around this current situation. Pastors, we're involved in agriculture because we tend to the sheep and we cultivate and we do things that make for, for the people that are here to grow. Miracles, they advertise. They're part of the advertisement because when you watch the ministry of Jesus, miracles never were a standalone. They were always the exclamation point to a miracle. Jesus was making a point and then he would give them a miracle to point to it. And so miracles were at work in the church to advertise the supremacy of God or the, or the, the celebrity of God, the greatness of God over whatever the given issue or the enigma was that the miracle was being administered to. And then there are those who have a gift of helping, a gift of administration, because there are things that need to happen that like, like cartilage, if you will, that if we didn't have it as a body, we would be in deep, deep pain, even though the rest of us may not be paying attention to our cartilage until it's gone. We need folk with the gift of administration and help in the church. These unique arrangements of gifts clarify that God is indeed building something. But why is he building and what is he building? I want you to think about this for a moment. This is not the first time in history that there has been a great building project. If any of you have read the Old Testament, you'll know very well that we had some folk before their languages were divided who all came together in unity 
all spoke the same language. And they begin to build something called the Tower of Babel. You remember what happened? The Tower of Babel was a great work, and it was growing. They said, we're going to build for ourselves a tower that will reach up to heaven. And God didn't say they couldn't do it. As a matter of fact, the only thing that stopped the project was God came down and did a building inspection and said, the foundation is wrong. This is built on human ambition. Stop all building. But yet, God was interested in man building something that would reach him, but not based on human ambition. The new foundation of what God is building is built on God's compassion. You see, the foundation of the church is Jesus. The foundation is Jesus, and it is built on the fact that God does desire to commune with man. And guess what? You don't even have to speak the same language nationally like the people did at the Tower of Babel because the church is going to come with a language, and that language is called the gospel. And just in case you can't understand that, I'll give people the gift of tongues so that you can hear the wondrous works of God even in your own native language. God will not be stopped by any of the sociological barriers that would keep people away from the grand enterprise that he is building. He will allow the gospel, the work of Jesus's, uh, what he's building a people who have placed faith in his death, burial, and resurrection. He will allow that work to be workable in any and every culture that there is. He's the foundation. It's God's compassion, not human ambition. This building that God is building, it, 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 it's, it's, it's superior to all other gifts. You see, our gifts are subordinate to the great gift. Our gifts tell a compelling story, but when used together, they create this beautiful missional engine that makes the world look and say, ooh, I want one of those. Have you ever noticed that when a car is beautiful and awesome, you don't care what country made it? When that thing come together and it's engineered well, you say, I, I, I got to have it. Where do I buy one of those? But you know what gets in the way is that oftentimes it's very elusive. Either they don't make that here or it costs too much. The same is so with our salvation. It was elusive. It's a gift that we couldn't purchase. It costs too much. That thing is too expensive. But God said, don't worry about it. I still want you to have one of these. I still want you to be able to have relationship with me. I'll pay for it. I'll even deliver it. I'll bring it to you. You don't have to get on a plane and fly across the, the seas to, to get access to gospel. This is what I am building on the foundation of my son, Jesus Christ. And I'll make sure that there is a facility in a neighborhood near you. I want to build something through the unique symphony of the gifts. But when all the gifts come together, look at this. When all the gifts come together, they point people to the ultimate gift giver. And the ultimate gift, which is the gift of salvation too expansive, too exclusive, and too elusive for any of us to engineer on our own, but oh, so beautifully available because God brought it to us. That's the true nature of a gift. We couldn't build our own salvation. He had to bring it to us. And so um, we have this beautiful conversation from the Apostle Paul concerning the gifts. But there's not... It's not about my gift or your gift. It is about our gifts. Can we leverage these gifts effectively? Can we use these gifts on each other? Can we wear each other out with edification and sanctification and unity and glorifying our God together in such a way that we create this compelling witness where people say, what is God building over there? 
And how can I be down? How can I be a part? Let's be about that. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're thankful to you today that you're building something. You're building something so beautiful and so awesome that it's in result. The eyes have not seen, the ears have not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man which you have reserved for them that place faith in you. I pray, oh God, that each and every one of our gifts, that you would stir them within us. You would awaken them with us. We would not see ourselves as sideline people or ancillary. We wouldn't see ourselves as being not necessary to the grand orchestration of what you're doing. We would understand ourselves as part of this great toolbox that you've given. But we are not just existing as tools in and of ourselves, oh God, but we are a part of this grand enterprise that in your hands, we do wonderful things. Help us, Lord God, to yield ourselves to you so that in your hands we can, we can craft wondrous things that our world would see and be compelled to come and find out about the one who gave us these gifts. Lord God, would you help us? Would you help us, Jesus? We need you. We can't do it on our own. Help us to, be a, to tell a compelling story that would cause people to want to know about this Jesus who you sent to die in our place for our sins and be raised from the dead. Ladies and gentlemen, as we talk about a common language, not only is the gospel the common language of God to all men, but it's because God has come to address a common problem, sin, death, and the devil. Whether you call it sin or not, we all can identify with the simple fact that it is impossible to simply stop doing things that are counterintuitive to my own will and my own well-being. That's sin. You might not want to call it that. You might not be religious, but that's what it is. We also cannot avoid death as much as we want to. We, need to, we all need to jog and do sit-ups and lower cholesterol and be consistent on our medicine. But at the end of the day, we don't have a pill that will put away death. At the end of the day, we can't stop evil. There's stuff that we just don't understand that even if we didn't do it, we look from behind our eyes and we can't understand how could something like that ever happen? It's because of the prevalence of evil. And God recognizes that common language amongst all culture, that there is brokenness, there is evil, there's fallenness, and there's something going on, and there's death. And so God says, I have an antidote for that. And it's the gospel. It is, it is the work of my son, Jesus Christ, who, if you place faith in him, he was raised from the dead in victory over sin, death, and devil. The three things that represents the arch nemesis of all mankind. Every scientific and mathematical enterprise, every poetic enterprise, nothing that you can think about, it, all of those things are, are, are engaged in trying to solve those three great enigmas. God says, I've already done it. Let us be good stewards of the gospel and leverage our gifts in such a way that the world will want to know what's happening amongst the people of God. Amen. Let's worship him.